started your morning this morning, or at least have had this morning a cup of coffee. So far, wow. Well, I actually didn't start drinking coffee until, uh, until Stella was born, to be honest with you. So this is almost five years ago when she was born, um, I started to drink coffee. But over the last few years, I've grown in my appreciation for the heavenly drink. And if you, if you start to, to sort of look into coffee more and uh, where it's grown and how it's made and all of that stuff, um, start to be more interested in it, you'll discover that coffee from different regions of the world actually tastes a bit different. Uh, it's really pretty fascinating. And there are, there's so many factors that determined what a particular uh, coffee bean from a particular place will taste like. But one of the major factors in determining how coffee will taste is the soil in which it's grown. And the soil impacts the taste of the coffee, depending on all sorts of things, even down to the, uh, the particular bugs that live in that soil. That can influence how the coffee tastes. Uh, but it, it influences the taste, but the soil also can determine how many uh, coffee beans are produced on a particular plant. Um, they can be more productive or less productive based on the soil. And so if I'm ever buying high-quality coffee, and I don't mean Folgers by high-quality coffee. No offense to anyone that drinks Folgers. That's fine. Um, but if I'm ever buying really high-quality coffee, I know there are certain countries that if I see uh, you know, the single origin from that country, I know that I'll enjoy and appreciate the flavor of that coffee. Uh, and I know that at least in part, it's because of the soil that that coffee was grown into uh, or grown from. And soil matters quite a bit when it comes to all sorts of things. Um, grapes are also like that, can shape how, your, uh, how the grape tastes and, uh, and all of that. Soil matters. And we're going to see that over the next couple of weeks as we study this particular passage, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Now, if, you, if you're not open there, go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. This is a very familiar passage to you. I mean, this is a common parable. It's one of the most well-known parables. It's easy to tell kids this parable. It makes a lot of sense. You can do a cool illustration with soil and put rocks in a cup under the soil so they get the picture of what's going on there. It's really a great, great story. But I'm afraid that this parable has probably been wrongly titled in your Bible. At least it has in mine. In my Bible, it says the parable of the sower. Well, that's not quite accurate when you really start to read and study this parable. The sower is not mentioned very much, and he's not the focus of the parable at all. If you read through this, even casually, and I think as we study it this week and next week, you're going to see that this parable is actually about the soils. It's about the seed going into the soil, particular types of soil. And it's about what happens when the seed falls into that soil and starts to grow. Now, over leading up to this parable, over the first three chapters of Mark, we've seen Jesus arrive on the scene and we've seen all sorts of responses to him, haven't we? I mean, we've seen conflict stories between Jesus and the religious leaders. We've seen the crowds who are absolutely amazed and taken with his miracles. They want to see more of that. They want to experience more healing. 
The scribes think he is from Satan himself and his ministry is done using dark power from from Satan. Even his own family has a particular opinion on who Jesus is and what he's doing. They think he's actually insane and he's lost his mind, as you saw in Mark chapter 3. And so you, you read through these first three chapters, a lot of stuff happens, and you get to this point and you, you're probably starting to wonder, what are we to make of all of these responses to Jesus? And the disciples were probably starting to think that too. How do we process through all the varied responses to the ministry of Jesus Christ? What are we to think about these things? And that's where Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20 comes into play. What happens in Mark is you have narrative, you have stories, and then you'll get a chunk of teaching. So Mark chapters 1 to 3, and then Mark chapter 4 is all teaching. Mark compiled all these different parables of Jesus together into one chapter. Then you go back to the narrative, and there's teaching mixed in, but then you get all the way to Mark chapter 13, and you have a huge chunk of teaching in Mark chapter 13, and then you go back to narrative again. And so there really are two big, big sections of teaching, and this chapter is one of them. And so we want to interpret what we've just seen and what we will see in the Gospel of Mark in light of what we learn from the teaching in Mark chapter 4. So this is a significant section in the Gospel of Mark, and we want to pay careful attention to what we're going to see here. So Mark 4 explains the various responses that we've been seeing to the ministry of Jesus. It's pretty simple in that way. And as you're going to see, I'll sort of let the cat out of the bag here. As you're going to see in this section, the response that you have to Jesus, that these people have to Jesus, is all about the soil of your heart. That's what makes the difference. And that's why we've entitled this, these first, or these couple of sermons here, the soil of your heart. It's the the central, central idea here. And so during these two weeks, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20, we want to think personally and practically about our own response to the ministry of Jesus. And so these couple of weeks, we're going to see four ways to ensure a proper response to Jesus and his ministry. Pretty straightforward. We're talking about the response to Christ. We've been seeing the responses that people have to Jesus. So now we're going to think personally and practically Four ways to ensure a proper response to Jesus and his ministry. All right? First one, first way. Mark 4, 1 to 9, listen. All of these are one word, commands. Listen. And so if you're thinking geographically as you're reading through Mark, we've seen Jesus really in a pretty small area. He's been around the Sea of Galilee. He's been at Capernaum. And a lot of times he will teach right by the sea. He sort of prefers that location. And that's what we see again here at the beginning of Mark chapter 4. And as he begins to teach by the sea, we see some of the same things happening again that we've been seeing. A huge crowd gathers to hear him teach. Look at verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him. This time, he takes some precautions to that crowd. Remember, they were almost trying to shove him into the water just to touch his garment. Well, look what he does this time. So that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And so this time he gets out in a boat and he's teaching, and I'm sure you can picture this in your minds. Everyone's on the land. 
on the shore, as close as they can get to the shore without getting wet, I'm sure, and they're listening to Jesus teach from the boat. Well, up until this point, we've not gotten a lot of details about what he's been teaching. We know he's been proclaiming the kingdom. He's been calling people to repent and believe. But we haven't gotten a big section or a big chunk of his teaching. Well, that changes here in Mark chapter 4. Look at verse 2. And he was teaching them many things in parables. Okay, so that's helpful. We haven't run into this word, parables, yet. It's important that you think correctly about what's happening when Jesus teaches in parables. Now, I'm sure that you've heard the definition of a parable before, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I'm sure that that you've been taught that before. Well, that simply won't do when you see what happens in this passage as it relates to parables. When you define a parable as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, basically you're sort of stripping it down to an illustration that Jesus uses in order to bring clarity, that's a key word, clarity to a spiritual truth. All right, now I'm going to say something shocking here, but we'll circle back around and explain it. Jesus didn't use parables to bring clarity. Jesus used parables, at least in part, to obscure the truth. Now we'll explain. That sounds scandalous, I know, and that's probably opposite of everything you've heard about parables before. But we'll explain what we're talking about here, and I think you're going to see it very clearly in the text, all right? But before we get to that, that's sort of a teaser as to what's coming, okay? So you can sit uncomfortably for a while until we, until we get to, to that section of this, okay? Um, before we get to that, let's look at Jesus' actual parable in verses 3 to 9 here. Now, I'm, I know you're familiar with this. At this point, there's no explanation. It's just a story. Jesus is giving us this story here. There's no spiritual truths. He's just telling a story from the boat to the people on the shore. Let's read it. Verse 3. Listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, very familiar parable. Obviously, farming is very prevalent in Palestine during this time. And so Jesus is probably speaking from personal observation, although he did create this whole system of putting seeds into the ground. And so he sort of understood how it worked, but he's probably seen this happen. And the basic idea is that a farmer goes out and throws his seed out into the field onto the ground. And his desire, of course, is to reap a crop. He wants to grow whatever he knows will come from that seed. And so as this sower does that, Jesus describes what happens. There are four different locations where the seed falls here, okay? The seed lands, and then each location tells us the corresponding result. So the seed falls, and Jesus says, and here's what happened to the seed that fell in that location. So the whole focus of this story, this parable, is what happens 
based on what type of soil the seed falls into. We don't have to go into a whole lot of detail, but I'll just run through these pretty quickly. The first location in verse 4 is a path where the seed falls. Now, if you've ever been to maybe a third world country, an agricultural area, especially I've been to Nepal several times, in the rice paddies, you will see a walkway that will be hardened as people have gone over it, okay, over and over again. And if you were to throw seed or try to plant something on that hardened dirt pathway, it wouldn't grow. It wouldn't go down into the ground because it's hard soil. It's pretty self-explanatory. And what happens when the, the seed falls onto that is it's a pretty easy snack for a bird. It just sits there. The bird is able to come and snatch it away. Great place to get a snack. And the reason that it doesn't go into the soil is because the soil has not been plowed up for the seed to go into it. All right, that's the first location. The second location, verse 5 and 6, is the rocky soil. Now, what this probably means here is soil that looks good on the top, and then there's rocks underneath of it, just under the surface. And so the, the seed, as it goes into it, can't sustain deep roots that will reach down into the water. And so when the sun hits this seed as it sprouts up quickly, there's no depth of roots there. And so the plant springs up, and then it withers away in the sun. It can't sustain because there are no roots. Third, in verse 7, Some of the seed fell on what looks like good ground here, but this ground has thorns. Maybe it looked like there were good plants there, but the thorns grow up, and instead of producing grain, the seed grows, but it's not able to get the nutrients that it needs, and so the weeds and the thorns take over. They take all the nutrients, and so this seed is choked out, and it can't produce any fruit that the sower desires of it. Anybody who's done gardening probably recognizes what this is like. There's weeds growing, there's plants growing that you want to grow, and you need to get the weeds out of there so the plants can grow. The good seed can produce fruit or flowers or whatever it is that you have. And then finally, in verse 8, other seed fell into the good soil. And what you have here is you have soil that's good, and it produces different levels of response or different levels of crop here. All right? Now, as you look at these four different seeds, I want you to notice that there's actually a progression in the different types of soil. The first seed doesn't even sprout. It falls onto the soil. The bird takes it away. The second one sprouts, but it withers quickly and dies out. The third one grows and stays, but there's no fruit, which is what the sower is looking for. And then the fourth one actually produces fruit. So there's a progression here in these in the seed as it falls on the soil progression in the different types of soil so good story good illustration but here's what i want you to notice about this parable look at the way it starts and look at the way it ends what's the first word in this parable listen that's a command and then look down at verse 9 and he said he who has ears to hear and then it's the same word again let him hear listen So Jesus starts this parable and ends this parable with a command for you and I and the people that were on the seashore to listen. And when he says this, he's not just saying, let the sound waves pass over the various parts of your ear so that you can audibly understand the words. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying you need to be careful 
as you're listening to this. You need to pay special attention to what I'm saying here. Look back at verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you are able to hear, and not everyone is able to hear what I'm saying. You're not able, some of you, to listen carefully to this. But the command is you need to. This is urgent and important. The responsibility is with you, the hearer, to carefully evaluate what you are listening to. And so what Jesus is saying here is, as I'm giving this parable, you as the hearer need to make the proper preparations to be able to hear and understand this teaching. Now the Bible is filled with commands to God's people to listen. I mean, in Deuteronomy, over and over again, God says, listen to me, listen to my word. And in order to properly respond to Jesus, this has to be the very baseline of action for you and I. It starts here. To ensure a proper response to Christ and his ministry, this is the ground level starting point. Listen. Listen with open ears and open hearts. How would you feel if you walked in here every week and you knew that I had done zero preparation to preach the word of God. Basically, I got up every Sunday and I knew I had 40 minutes and I could just wing it. I'd talk about maybe some things I read on the news this week, talk about some sports teams and how they're doing and maybe crack a couple jokes and just try to fill my 40 minutes up with various things from my life this week. How would you feel if I did that? Little of this, little of that, whatever comes to mind. Well, I can guarantee you that at this church, I would not make it very long in this position if I did that and just sort of winged it each week. But why do we not expect at least some level of preparation for those who are listening to the word of God as well? And that's what Jesus calls us to here. You and I are working together this morning, okay? All right, this is not a one-man show at all, not in the least. I have a job. My job is to study, to show myself approved. I am to rightly divide the word as best I can to the best of my ability, and I'm supposed to explain it as clearly as I can so that you can understand it. That's my job. Your job before God, you are tasked with the responsibility to prepare your heart to loosen up the soil of your heart and to come in here on Sundays and to listen carefully to God's word. Intentionally listen so that God's word can produce fruit in you. I'm getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. I read a quote by Charles Spurgeon this week, and I wanted to show this to you. I love this. We are told men ought not to preach without preparation. Granted. But we add, men ought not to hear without preparation. Which do you think needs the most preparation, the sower or the ground? I would have the sower come with clean hands, but I would have the ground well plowed and harrowed, well turned over, with the clods broken before the seed comes in. It seems to me that there is more preparation needed by the ground than by the sower. More by the hearer than by the preacher. 
Now, I'm not saying you need to spend the number of hours that I do each week preparing to preach, preparing to listen. But this is the first way to ensure a proper response to Christ. Why don't we bear more fruit in our lives? Maybe it's because we don't come prepared to listen and come prepared to properly respond to God's word. You have to be intentional about this. And Jesus would say to the people on the shore, first and foremost, you have to listen to me. You have to listen to this. And that brings us to our second proper response to Jesus. And this is the last one we'll get to this week. First of all, listen. This is baseline level. And second is receive. Verses 10 to 12. So you have all these people on the shore. Jesus calls them to listen. He commands them to listen. And then there are a small number of them who seem to have obeyed what he says, and they respond. Look at verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12, so it's more than just the disciples, there's a certain number who come with the disciples, they asked him about the parables. They clearly don't understand. They don't know what the point of this story is, and so they come to Jesus for further explanation. And I think that's a beautiful picture. If you don't understand, go back to the word and listen and read and try to understand. And look what Jesus says to them in the first part of verse 11. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. All right. What does he mean by the secret of the kingdom of God? Well, the word here that's translated secret sometimes in the New Testament is translated mystery, okay? And that's probably a familiar word to you. The secret of the kingdom that he's talking about here means God's plans for Jesus Christ and the way the kingdom is coming through Christ. It's inaugurated through Christ. And then ultimately, it's going to come fully here through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's all that is involved in the ministry and the person of Jesus Christ completing the plans of God. That's the secret of the kingdom. And here's why he calls it a secret or a mystery. Because a mystery is something that you and I can't grasp without God revealing it to us. You don't come to these conclusions by human knowledge and ability. You don't sort of work the math problem out and get there. It's something that God has to reveal to you. But as God reveals it, you must receive it and believe it. And the thing about the secret of the kingdom is it's not something that is immediately apparent in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus wasn't born a king. He was born lowly. He wasn't enthroned as a monarch at this point in his ministry. And later on in his ministry, he's going to die a horrible death and a shameful death. And that's hardly befitting of a king. And so to properly understand the ministry of Jesus, he says here, it has to be revealed to you by the father. What he's saying is believe This is faith seeking understanding. Trust the proclamation of the kingdom and understanding will come. And this understanding is a gift from God. It's exactly what he says in verse 11. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. 
I love how he describes that. It's been given to you. The very fact that you and I are here this morning and that we're sitting, listening to the word of God and that we have grasped the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we have seen our sin and repented of our sin and understand the work that Jesus did. The very fact that that is true is an act of grace for you and I. And so as Christians, we respond to that grace humbly and we recognize that God has graciously bestowed this upon us. If you imagine this morning that you are sitting here or that you understand the gospel because you're a bit smarter than the average Joe and you're a bit more righteous than the average person. And you sort of figured this thing out and you think I'm the main cause in my salvation. I got this then you don't really understand grace. And you don't really grasp what Jesus is saying here. It has been given to you to understand the secret of the kingdom. Last week, some of you may remember, we talked about complaining a little bit. We talked about how complaining puts us in the seat of authority, right? I'm the one evaluating what's happening in my life. I'm evaluating God's word and his works. Well, this week, I want to flip that on its head, and I want to say, you put off complaining, but what do you put on in your Christian life? Thankfulness. It's the opposite of complaining. It's not enough to just drop a complaining spirit, because you can't just drop it. You have to put something on to replace it. And the thing you put on, the disposition that you put on is thankfulness. Thankfulness is not just something we tell kids to have. Because it's really nice for a small child to say thank you. Please and thank you. Thankfulness is something that is absolutely vital for the Christian. If you read Romans chapter 1, where it describes the sinfulness of man and the plight of humanity and evil, Paul puts an unthankful heart right up there with idol worship. It's a significant thing to not be a thankful person. Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, and do everything giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thankfulness is the tone and tenor of the Christian's life. Why is that true? Because giving thanks to God in everything is recognizing that everything you and I have is a gift of grace from him. It's a disposition that knows that you see reality as it is. And you know that everything you have is a gift of grace. Thankfulness is a heart that first and foremost says, I have received. I've received. That's the key word. I have been given a gift. And you won't be thankful for something unless you recognize that you've been the kind recipient. You've been given a gift very kindly and you were the recipient of it. Even if you work a job and you do a good job and do well at your job and it's you that does the work, you should be thankful for the God-given ability to do the work. Everything we have is a gift. And so Colossians says to respond to everything with thankfulness through Jesus Christ. So we receive the gift that he has given to us. That's one way to ensure a proper response. To Jesus. But 
That's not all that Jesus says here in verse 11. And now we get to the fun part. So the disciples come to him in faith. And the meaning of the parable is going to be given to them. Jesus is going to explain exactly what he meant when he gave the parable. And we'll get to that next week, verses 13 to 20. And we'll talk about application of that for our own lives, all right? So we'll get there. But here, he talks about those who do receive and understand the parables. But he also talks about those who don't receive the parables. They don't respond properly. And this is in the rest of verse 11. And in verse 12, we've seen in chapter three, the scribes respond to Jesus by calling him Satan, by saying he's empowered by Satan. And that's one of the groups that Jesus is talking about here. Look at the rest of verse 11. But for those outside, right outside the kingdom, everything is in parables. So Jesus speaks parables, at least in part, for those outside. Why? Verse 12. So that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, that is a heavy passage, and that's a little unsettling to read that. And even as you read commentators talk about it, they sort of dance around what's happening here. All right. I want to try to explain this as clearly as I can. So the meaning of this parable is not immediately clear to the disciples. Okay. So they go and ask Jesus about it. They ask him and trust him in order to understand. But the meaning of the parable is also not clear because Jesus intends it, at least in part, to not be clear. He wants to obscure the truth to some level. The goal here is that people would not be able to fully grasp what's happening. Why does Jesus say these words? Are parables really supposed to make it more difficult for people to turn from their sin and be forgiven? Well, I think to understand the answer to that question, we need to look at verse 12 and we need to see that that is a quote from the Old Testament. I hope it's set apart in your Bible, okay? And if you have a footnote there, you can see that that is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6, all right? Now, you don't have to speak it out, but do you know what's happening in Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah 6 is the call and commission of Isaiah to ministry. It's where he's in the throne room of God. He sees God. God says, who will go for us? And he says, here am I, send me. Very familiar passage. I want you to turn over there so you can see where Jesus quotes this from. Track with me here, and I think you'll understand this, and I think it'll be really helpful to you. Turn over to Isaiah 6. Keep your finger in Mark 4. We're going to be here in Isaiah 6 for a moment. So Isaiah's in the throne room. He sees God. God says, I need someone to go. Isaiah responds and says, send me. And a lot of times we stop there. But do you know what God told Isaiah his ministry was going to be like? Not good. (laughs) Look at verse 9. And he said, go and say to this people, speak to Israel and the leadership of Israel. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. 
Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And here's what God wants Isaiah to do. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. All right, so you can see Jesus takes that passage and pulls it into his day and says the same thing that was happening then with Isaiah is what's happening now in my ministry. So Isaiah was supposed to preach in order to harden the hearts of the people of Israel. That seems crazy. Why in the world would God send him to do that? Well, Isaiah 6, this commission of Isaiah, you would expect that to come at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, right? You would expect God to commission Isaiah right at the the get-go of his book. But that's not what happens because God wants you to understand the commission and the purpose of Isaiah's ministry in light of Isaiah 1 to 5. Now, what has happened in Isaiah 1 to 5? Flip back to Isaiah 1, and this will help you to understand what Jesus is doing and what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah 1, let's read a few passages here. Isaiah 1, verses 2 to 4. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So he sets the tone right off the bat. This is a statement of judgment on Israel. They have been sinful and rebellious. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 6. Speaking about the Lord, he says, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. Why? Because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. You starting to see the problem that's going on in Israel? Now, one more. Isaiah 3, verse 13. And look who he's specifically talking to here. Verse 13, the Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with who? With the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard, which is Israel. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God Of hosts. So you read all of these passages and you understand the position that Israel's in when you get to Isaiah 6. The leadership of the nation of Israel has been arrogant, they've been self reliant, and they have rejected God's instruction over and over and over again. And you can see this all the way back to the very beginning of the nation of Israel, can't you? This is the pattern. And so God's commission to Isaiah is not some sadistic, evil, hard-hearted, I want you to go and condemn them to judgment. They're, they're ready to receive me, but I want you to go and just push them over the edge. That's not what God's doing there. What he's doing is he's basically 
having Isaiah preach so the people's hearts will be hardened and so that they will continue in their sin. They're already committed to this and he's just letting it go and saying, fine, if that's the way that you have chosen, if that's the soil of your heart, then have at it. And ultimately, their hearts will be even further hardened by the preaching that Isaiah gives and that will result in the exile and God's judgment on the nation. God gives them up to their own wisdom as they reject his wisdom. Now, go back to Mark chapter 4. Again, what did we see in Mark 3? What have we seen so far to the ministry of Jesus? We've seen the scribes telling us that Jesus is of the spawn of Satan. We've seen his family thinking he's insane. It's the exact same situation that Jesus has come into. And the leadership of Israel has once again rejected God's word. And so now Jesus says, okay, I'm going to teach and preach in parables so that those who come to me in faith can receive and understand. And so that those who reject and continue to reject will be hardened in their sinfulness. So parables are really a way of bringing judgment on people who are rejecting Jesus, particularly on the leadership of Israel. It's a way for Jesus to veil his teaching. And so this veiled nature of Christ's teaching, it creates this fascinating dynamic, doesn't it? Where people who listen and receive come to him and respond and want more of his teaching and he gives understanding. But people who aren't interested and reject him, they're hardened in their sinfulness. And so this is like putting a stake in the ground and driving a wedge between these two groups of people here. Listen to Mark 4 and verse 25. I think this is helpful in understanding it. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's what's going on here. And that's why Jesus teaches in parables. And what's amazing about this whole situation, if you see this in light of the entire gospel of Mark, Jesus preaching in a veiled way and in parables and ultimately bringing judgment on the religious leaders is what ends up condemning Jesus to death. And so his death comes as a result of the judgment on the religious leaders and his death is the very means by which we are saved. And the good news comes to us. And then after his death, the good news is proclaimed clearly and broadly for anyone who can hear to hear and respond. Listen to Acts chapter 2. This all has fit within the plans of God. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It all fits within the beautiful, sovereign plan of God. Salvation comes through judgment on the religious leaders as they reject Christ's word, and parables are the means by which that happens. Now, this is not setting up a dynamic where those outside can never come inside, right? That's not what's happening here. 
I mean, at this point, the disciples really don't even understand fully what's happening in Jesus's ministry. They don't get it. And you'll see that throughout the gospel of Mark. At the end of chapter four, they ask, who then is this? They're not fully there yet. They don't understand it. But this is a warning and it's a dividing line. And God uses these type of warnings to increase the urgency of listening to what Jesus has to say. It's imperative that you listen and receive his word and respond, even if you don't fully understand what's happening here. Parables have a hardening effect on those who reject them. They have a softening effect on those who receive them. And what's the difference? What makes the difference? The soil of your heart. So I think you could say that Christ's parable here about soils is a parable about how to listen to parables. <laughs> hope that's not too confusing. The point is, is that you have to respond with good soil in your heart. Humbly submit to his word and come to him and receive what he has to say and obey what he has to say. And that question, what makes the difference, the soil of your heart, that's what Jesus is going to explain to the disciples next time in verses 13 to 20. Look what he says in verse 13, just to give you a preview there. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? You see what I'm saying? If you don't get this one, you're not going to get the other parables. The point is you have to understand that it's about the soil of your heart and how you respond and how you listen. So humbly come to him in faith. And I think this puts the urgency on us this week. Hebrews talks about this. How, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I mean, we have the whole word here. It's clear. We know the whole story. We're not listening to veiled parables anymore. We've got it all. And so it's so imperative that we respond appropriately to Jesus and his teaching here. And we'll look in more detail next week about the specific soils and how we can make application of that to our own lives. Let's pray. Father, these are, these are heavy, heavy items that we've been discussing this morning. This is sometimes hard for us to understand. You work in mysterious ways. Your will is accomplished by hardening some, like the religious leaders, even as they continue to reject you. And yet you offer grace and love and kindness and understanding to us as we respond appropriately to what we hear from your word. And so we pray this morning that your spirit would work in each of our hearts, that you would loosen up the soil of our hearts. Even this morning, this week, break it down. Soften the soil that's there so that we can listen and we can hear and we can respond appropriately to your word every time we hear it, Lord. We need you to do this work in our hearts. We can't do it on our own. It requires the power of the gospel and of your spirit and of your word. And so we beg you to do that in our lives even now. Thank you for your grace and your love. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.